When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated them came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem. Let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What a powerful passage in the Word of God, huh? Acts chapter 2. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us through your Word tonight. We thank you for your Word. It is living and active. Powerful. Holy Spirit, as we read about you, help us to be sensitive to you. May you lead us in the truth of the Word that you inspired. Uh, Lead us to love the Father, love the Son, and love you more than when we walked in. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, as I look at this Acts chapter 2, the birthday of the church, which is what I believe it is, I thought about the passage, and I thought in the second part of chapter 2, what we get is something kind of cool. We get to listen in on the first sermon preached after the church was born. Peter preaches it, as we know. And I thought about preaching, you know, preachers... Teachers, others who give talks think a lot about introductions, right? You know, how do I introduce this subject? Sometimes maybe we think about it too much, you know. Do I tell a story about this? Do I tell a joke? You know, and sometimes those introductions go great and other times they they flop. (laughs) 
I, I remember one time I was sitting in a service and a good friend of mine was, was leading the congregation into a time of worship. And he was going down an emotional path. He was, he was excited as he should have been. And, and he said, tonight my, my hope is to lead us to the fart of the hother. <laughs> and we all know what he meant. <laughs> but it took us about five minutes to settle down before we <laughs> really got into that first song. Sometimes our introductions work, sometimes they don't. But I thought about Peter's sermon, and I thought about no one gives better introductions to sermons than God himself. You know, those people were ready to hear Peter's sermon because of what God did in the first part of this chapter. The Holy Spirit came. 120 people in that upper room. And what we see, just like the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and that's how Jesus was conceived in the book of Luke, the Holy Spirit came upon those early believers. And that's how the body of Christ came to be. And you think about what was happening there. Just... just, Read through it with me. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So you got this sound of a violent wind. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's no wonder when Peter started talking, the crowd was ready to hear what he had to say, right? Before we get to his message, though, I think there's so much that we can see in God's work in this introduction. First, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. I want to take us back to chapter 1 a little bit. Do you remember what they were doing as they were all together? There's a verse in chapter 1 that tells us. We don't have to wonder. They were together constantly in prayer. Constantly in prayer. Jesus had told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. And as they waited that 10 days, they were in prayer. And what that got me thinking about, when we think about the awesome events of the day of Pentecost... Let me ask you, do you think the fact that those believers were constantly in prayer and then God did something amazing, do you think those are unrelated facts? I don't. I don't. You know, and what it makes me think about is if we really want God to work in powerful ways in our homes, in our missional communities, in our church, in our world, we've got to be a people that are committed to prayer too. Do you want God to be constantly at work in powerful ways in your life? Then let's be people that are constantly in prayer. The other thing I see in this passage is some beautiful timing on God's part. I I look at the Bible and you guys, excuse me, you know what Jesus said, right? The Pharisees, he's talking to them and he tells them in John 5, 38, he says, you diligently study the scriptures Because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures, listen, that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now which scriptures was Jesus talking about? Some of them. 
No, at that time he was talking about the entire Old Testament. Now that we have the New Testament, it would apply to that as well. Every bit of our Bibles is about Jesus. And some of us want to say, even Leviticus? Because <laughs> every time I read Leviticus, all I, all I remember reading about is, is guts and fire and smoke and, and mildew. You know, that's the part of the Bible when you start your yearly Bible plan that a lot of us, Leviticus for some reason takes three months to get through when it should only take one week. As you read a couple of verses and say, what's going on here? Even Leviticus. And I want to walk you guys through something cool. You see that word? Let's go back to verse one for a second, guys. What day was it that this took place? The day of Pentecost. Pentecost was a Jewish feast, and I want to walk you through a quick timeline. You guys could dive into this more on your own. What feast was going on around the time of Jesus' death? Passover. Right, he celebrated Passover with his disciples on Thursday. He died Friday of Passover week. And if you remember, the Jews celebrated Passover to remember how God came to Egypt and he said, I'm going to wipe out the firstborn of every Egyptian family. If you guys want to be spared, you will kill a lamb and spread the blood of that lamb on the doorpost. So you can see right away a connection. You want to be spared, a lamb must die and you must trust in that blood on your doorpost. Connection to Jesus, he died right during that feast. He is our lamb who died to spare us from God's judgment. Now, a lot of us know that. But how many of us know what, what feast begins the Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead? The Sunday that Jesus rose from the dead, the Jews were celebrating a feast called First Fruits. That's when their crops just started growing in. And they would take some of the first parts of their crop to the priest and he would wave that first part to the Lord in hopes and, and in trust that God would provide more. That was the Sunday Jesus rose from the dead. Now you know why Paul later said in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus is our first fruits. Because he rose, there's more coming. We're going to rise again too if we trust in him. Now you go 50 days after that. That's what Pentecost means. Pentecost, 50 days. It's a transliteration. 50 days after that. And they started... The Feast of Pentecost. That's the feast where they celebrate the, the final harvest of their crops. They, they celebrated the beginning. Fifty days later, they harvest it all. And you know what they do? They would take two loaves of bread that they made with yeast from their crop. With wheat and yeast. They'd make it and they'd take it to the priest. And he would wave those two loaves of bread. Now I want you to think about Pentecost in those terms. The Holy Spirit came on these Jews created the early church, what was the, the plan throughout the book of Acts? Was it for the, the body of Christ to remain one-sided, just the Jews, or was it to, to add another group? What was the other group that was to be reached as they went into all the world? Jews and Gentiles. And so you start to see two loaves are a great picture that there are two groups that God wanted to bring into his body. And as he got this church ready with the Holy Spirit, that's what he's looking at. Even Leviticus is about Jesus. Now let's go on to verse 2. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. 
Any of you ever been through a tornado warning? I grew up in Ohio, so we had our share of those. Anybody ever heard a tornado? <laughs> How would you describe it, Ken? It's a freight train. Like a freight train. I heard one guy describe it as a thousand freight trains coming through town. That's, that's how he described this. This is not the sound of a gentle breeze. It describes it as the, blowing of a, the sound of the blowing of a violent wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You guys know that the Greek word for spirit, pneuma, can be translated spirit or wind. And Jesus himself had used this picture for the spirit when he's talking to who? Nicodemus, you remember that late night conversation? He told Nicodemus in John 3, 8, The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus had paved the way for this. But there's a little phrase in this verse that got me excited this week that I never really camped on too much. You notice where that sound came from? It came from heaven. Now you go back to chapter 1 as the disciples watched Jesus. He had just gone back there, right? They had just watched him ascend to heaven. Acts 1.11, the angel said, Why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back. And isn't this the Jesus that had promised his disciples in the upper room? If I go, I'll send the Holy Spirit. John 16, 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So the fact that this came from heaven where Jesus just went, you know what that means? This is Jesus keeping his promise. And I love that about Jesus. You can go through the New Testament. I love that about God. You find a promise in here, you can take it to the bank. And we're not used to that because all kinds of people in our lives make promises and they go to another place, they move across the country, around the world, and what happens? Sometimes they, they forget, they get busy. Jesus went all the way to heaven and he remembered his promise and he sent this Holy Spirit. I don't know what promises of God or Jesus you need to hold on to tonight. If you're his child, count on those promises. It also talks about fire, right? They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on, these are important words, each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Katrina's getting excited. Fire, all through the Old Testament, right, is symbolic of God's presence, whether it's at Mount Sinai when Moses gets the law and there's fire up there. You, you talk about the burning bush before that where Moses met God. You talk about the pillar going through the wilderness. It was a fire by night and a, a cloud by day. Fire symbolized the presence of God. So you got that picture that God's here. John the Baptist has said this was going to happen, right? Early on in his ministry, he said, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. See the connection? All right, this is something that's been predicted. And I want to camp on those phrases, each of them and all of them. This is something that we sometimes take for granted in the church. 
that every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. But this was new at this moment. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come for a little while on certain individuals to empower them for a task. But your average Jew never experienced what it was like to have the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit would come upon David to enable him to to rule his country wisely. He'd come upon Samson to help him, I don't know, tear open a lion or kill a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Some of you are like, I want some of that. (laughs) But he would come on just a few for a short time. Came on Moses to help him lead his people. And Moses, way back in his day, he dreamed of a time when all people that believed in God would have this Holy Spirit. There were two other guys in the camp that the Holy Spirit came upon and they were prophesying or speaking the truth of God. And some people come up to Moses and they're like, Moses, there's, there's two dudes over here prophesying. You better tell them to stop. And what's, what's their thinking? They're thinking, hey, if people start seeing them being used by God, you know, it's going to bring Moses down. You know, we don't want to bring Moses down. You know what Moses said to him in Numbers 11? He said, you guys, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. What Moses wished for centuries ago, these early believers experienced each of them and all of them. Part of where we need to go with this is when we see God using another believer for his glory, we should be filled with joy. That should just make our day when we see God using other believers. If there's any part of us that's jealous of what God's doing through them, we need to check our hearts because we're being like the people that came to Moses where we need to be like Moses. That is awesome because what's good for God is good for God's body. You know? So when you see God using somebody, say, thank you, Lord. And thank him every day if you trust in Jesus for the presence of the Holy Spirit because there were many men who died and never experienced that in this world. We get to experience that. I don't think we should take that for granted. There's two words used here for the Spirit coming upon these people. One's baptism, and one is filling. The baptism comes in. Jesus had promised they would be baptized. Back in Acts chapter 1, he said, in a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And what it means, that word baptism... Often with water, as you know, is to be submerged or immersed, but it also carries with it the idea of inclusion. Sometimes they even used it in other Greek documents to talk about the pickling process. You take a plain cucumber, you dip it in the the water with all the, the seasonings with all those other pickles, and what happens? It becomes a pickle. Now, verse 4 in our chapter talks about the filling. All of them were filled. And what filling is this idea, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. It's this idea of control. Just as someone who's controlled by wine does things that are unnatural to them, you know, someone that's drunk, maybe slurs their speech, drives erratically, Someone who is controlled by the Spirit does things that are unnatural to them. And I'm not talking about slurred speech and driving weird. I'm talking about like loving people that don't love me. I'm talking about forgiving people that have wronged me and have shown no remorse. I'm talking about all the things God calls us to do that, that we can't do on our own. 
Now, baptism and filling for these guys happened all in one shot. They were baptized and filled at the same moment. And for them, it was after they had already believed in Jesus because they were the first ones to have this experience. Baptism is a one-time thing. You're included in the body of Christ. Filling is something that can come and go as we decide to yield ourselves to the Holy Spirit or say, no, I'm not going there. The filling comes and goes. Now, for us, baptism happens just like for them once, but for us, it's at the moment we believe. There is not a believer in Jesus Christ that has not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9 says, If anyone does not have the Spirit, he does not belong to Christ. So you tell me, does that verse make it sound like it's possible to somehow believe in Jesus but not have the Spirit? No. It, it's a package deal. 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, We were all baptized by one Spirit into one body. Now, like I said before, the filling comes and goes as we decide to say, Yes, God, I'll do what you want, or no. I'm not interested. If we have unconfessed sin in our life, if we say no to God, if we try to do life in our own power, those are all things that, that kink that hose of the Holy Spirit's power and life flowing through us. We can't create that flow, but we can put kinks in it. It's important that we keep those kinks out of there. And one thing that's interesting that excites me in the book of Acts, every time it talks about filling, you know what it's connected to? It's connected directly to the mission that God gave them in the world to go into the world and make disciples. Every time they're filled, it was for that purpose, to go out and tell others about Jesus and disciple them. That excites me because I think sometimes we get this idea that the I got the Spirit and it's filling and we think of it in very selfish terms. Like we limit it to... I got the Spirit to help me feel better about myself or, or to help me have a good relationship with my family and friends or, or to have a good night's sleep or, or safety in my life. And while those things are good, the idea in the book of Acts, every time you see filling, is that they're filled for the purpose of telling others about Jesus. So we need to have this mindset, yes, God wants me to have a solid marriage, but it doesn't stop there. He wants me to have a solid marriage so that together we can go and make disciples. Yes, God wants peace in my family, but not just so we can enjoy that and, and hide it from the rest of the world. He wants that so that we can show neighbors what a difference Jesus makes and take them to them. One eight, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and here's why. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Therefore, Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. And we know that his plan was to make disciples of all nations, right? Something cool on this day of Pentecost even, you see God working this plan out in awesome ways. Let's go on in this passage. He wants to reach all nations and he's not going to wait on that too long. Let's go to verse 5, guys. Now they were staying in Jerusalem... God-fearing Jews, check this out, from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. The sound of these men, most likely, talking in different languages. We'll talk about that in a moment. Because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? 
Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamian, I won't go through the whole list. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. If you picture a map of today's world, those areas they're talking about go from Turkey to Iraq to northern Africa over to Iran. These people came from all those places and they hear these guys talking, declaring the praises of God in their own language. God did this at this time for a special reason. You guys know how Prescott gets around rodeo time? Like we're normally a pretty quiet, quiet area and then rodeo time comes and boy, the place doubles, right? You know, it gets full, there's traffic everywhere. Jerusalem was that like on steroids at the time of Passover and this Feast of Pentecost because Jews would travel from all over the empire and historians tell us like Josephus, the city was normally about 50,000 people but people would come at Passover and stay till Pentecost. Sometimes the population will rise to 3 million. <laughs> Do you imagine 50,000 to 3 million? God knew what he was doing when he planned this for this day. And even when you look at the world at that time, the Romans had established peace that allowed these Jews to travel safely for the most part. Yeah, there were dangers, but it was relatively peaceful. They had created roads that made it relatively easy for these Jews from different nations to come there and, and hear this news. There was a general hunger and sort of disillusionment at the time in the world with the Greek gods and the Roman gods and the Greek philosophies. If you read around that time, a lot of people were looking at those and saying, these, basically in our words, these are leaving me short. They're not fulfilling the need that I have. And you can just see God planning this just at the right moment. Even his plan to reach Jews first. You remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And you see this all through the book of Acts. These Jews come from these cities where they had built what to meet in? What did, what did Jews usually build in those cities to meet together? Synagogues. So they come here and they, they experience what God's doing afresh. They go back and because they were scattered even, this is all part of God's plan. When Paul goes out to these cities to talk about Jesus, where was usually the first place he would go? The synagogue. So you can see, even in the Jews being scattered around the world, God had his plan. He was like, man, I'm going to use this for my purpose of spreading my gospel. And that makes me say to us today, we've got unique opportunities in our world today, right, that, that people have never had as well. They had unique opportunities, and God used them. What sort of unique opportunities do we have that, that maybe people have never had before? I think about Facebook. On Facebook, you have the ability to, to spread an encouraging word or a truth about God to hundreds of people with the click of a mouse, where 30 years ago, you had to sit down with 100 letters and stamps and, and write that, or type it maybe on an electric typewriter and mail that out. And Look at, the, look at that, Twitter, uh, Skype. You can talk, I, I, I'm talking face-to-face -face with one of our missionaries in the Philippines this week. You can get on the computer and talk to people around the world. Air travel, freedom of religion in our country. I don't have to worry that I'm going to be locked up if I walk across the street and talk to my neighbor about Jesus. 80% of the church's wealth in the world, they've done studies, resides in America. 
These are all unique opportunities that as God's followers, we ought to be saying, how can we leverage this for God's kingdom? Because he didn't give us this opportunity by accident. He's very intentional about what he wants to do with us. Now I want to get into something that's sometimes controversial, but I want to keep it on point here. It's obvious in this passage that Luke is talking about actual languages. That these men from many countries and many languages come here. Three times in the passage, it says, each one heard him in his own language. One time it says, in his own native language. One time it says, in our own tongues. And these people were amazed. Did you see the part where where it said earlier, and these are Galileans? You may not know what that means today, but that's kind of their way of saying, these are a bunch of rednecks. How, how do they know all these languages? Like, Galileans were the, the rural people that lived in the mountains away from the city. And to these listeners watching these Galileans, which many of the disciples were, it's kind of like for us, like, I don't know how many of you guys remember Ernest P. Worrell. You know, know what I mean, Vern? You know, if you were to hear him go into an extended speech about the magnitude of detail in a human atom in Portuguese, that's kind of the feeling they got. Or if, or if you were to hear Tomater start quoting French poetry, that, that's what these guys are thinking. How in the world are these Galileans, these, these rednecks, speaking all these languages? Obviously, it's God. They could have spoken just Greek or Aramaic, which most of those people would have known, but God wouldn't have got his point across, would he? God had a point to get across. The Holy Spirit is doing something special here. Some people look at it and say, this is kind of a cool reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel, right? Tower of Babel, all these people are proud and they're rebelling against God. And God says, okay, I'm going to confuse your language so you can't understand each other. Now spread out. Here they come together and God in his grace allows them to hear these people in their own languages speaking the wonders of God. No wonder they're amazed. Verse, verse 12, it says, Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, They've had too much wine. You know, and I look at those two reactions. Those are basically the same two reactions that people can have to God's work in the world today, right? One is an open-mindedness, like when we see something special happen, what does this mean? What is God doing here? What what is he showing us about himself? The other one is sort of a a skeptical cynicism. You know, I I read what they said, and I think about Dumb and Dumber, where the officer pulls up to the side of the car. They're kind of like, hey, I've been hitting a little grandpa's cough syrup, eh? You remember that part? These guys are cynical, about what's going on. And, and I think we all need to ask that question when we see special things happening around us that God is doing. Which attitude describes me? You know, am I generally willing to at least say, God, what, what does this mean? What, what are you doing here? Do we believe in a supernatural God or are we cynical, skeptical? Yeah, these people that believe in God working in the world today, they're crazy. You know, Which one better describes me? Quite an introduction to Peter's sermon, huh? (laughs) No wonder the people are ready to hear the word of God through him. 
We're just going to talk about the first part of his sermon. The next time we're in Acts, we're going to talk about the rest. But even as I think about this sermon, isn't this the same Peter who just a couple months earlier had said three times, "I I don't know Jesus? It's obvious that even as he speaks, he stands up before thousands. Many, many think if this started at the house they were in, they may have walked towards the temple because there's evidently a crowd of thousands around him now listening. He stands up in the city where Jesus was crucified, where before he, I don't know him. Now he stands up to preach and, and he just jumps right in because he doesn't need an intro. He's, he's had one from God. Acts 2, 14 and 15 says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. And I know today in our culture, some of you are thinking, so what, Peter? You know, I know people that drink vodka with their breakfast. (laughs) What's your point? Okay, sadly, it doesn't have the same mean impact in our culture as it did back then. For, for them, a, a good normal Jew, if he did have wine, would only have it with meat. And they generally didn't eat meat in the morning. They ate bread. They ate meat in the evening. And so, especially combined with the fact that this is a holy time of the year, Peter's like, guys, do you know anybody that does this? And in that time, that would have been really rare. Some even see sort of a play on words in what he said there. See how he said, these men are not drunk as you suppose. Some look at that and and believe that Peter was saying, these guys aren't drunk like you think they are on wine. These guys are being controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's not as you suppose. There's something else going on here. And he goes on to quote this passage from Joel to explain to them what's going on. Written centuries earlier, he says, no, this, this that you hear and see around you, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, and he quotes Joel, God says, now I want you to listen to all the inclusion in here. You remember how we talked about this is a new idea? I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women. That was a big deal in a Jewish culture. Young and old, men and women. All. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Now something interesting, I don't recommend that you did do this, but Peter was inspired by God and the Bible was still being written, so this is okay. When Joel wrote this passage, he didn't say in the last days. He just said afterwards. Afterwards, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter changed it to in the last days. That's okay for an inspired Peter. You don't go trying that. But he's getting at a point here. He's saying, guys, this is the beginning of the last days. And some of us wrestle with, is this the last days or not? But if you read the New Testament... The last days begin right here, and and we've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean Jesus is going to come back tomorrow because it was the last days 2,000 years ago, but he could. And we've got a job to do in these last days. 
to go out and take Jesus to this world. We're the only group of people for this last 2,000 years in all of history that have the privilege of living in these last days where it's our role as God's followers to take the message of Jesus. That's special. He goes on in 19 and 20. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. Now I read some of that stuff and it sounds an awful lot like some of the book of Revelation, right? If you read through Revelation, those are the kind of signs you read about. People feel differently about this part. My understanding of this, when it talks about the day of the Lord, that's talking about the end of the last days when Jesus comes and begins to set up his kingdom, the tribulation and all that. I don't believe these signs have happened yet. But what Peter's telling us is by the Spirit being poured out upon the church, these last days have begun. Someone asks you, do we live in the last days? Yeah, we do. We do live in the last days. And we got to live in light of that fact. What's the point of this first part? And really the whole sermon he's going at. Verse 21. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now when Joel wrote that, he was talking to the nation of Israel because they were being disobedient. And his point was, you guys need to turn back to the Almighty God, to Yahweh, and repent. And He will restore your nation. When Peter says this, he's saying, turn to Jesus. Believe in what he did when he died on the cross and rose again. And you will be saved. You'll be saved. As we see next time, when he goes on in the rest of the sermon, he's going to focus in on Jesus. He's going to tell them who this Jesus is, what he did, and how they need to respond to it. Now, as I close, I want to wrestle with a question with you. Some of these are just my thoughts, so I could be off on some of them, but but I see something here. See if you see it too. I I wonder, why was this audience held so captive by this sermon? You know, if you read the whole sermon, it's missing a lot of the pizzazz that we sometimes think about in sermons today. You know, there were no jokes in Peter's sermon. There were no illustrations. There weren't three steps to a happy and peaceful life. Uh, He obviously didn't have fancy PowerPoint. All all the things we sometimes think make up a good sermon, they're not there. So it makes me want to say, what was there? Maybe we need to learn from this as to what we count on for a good message. There was a powerful demonstration of the Spirit's power in the lives of those believers. There was a powerful demonstration of the Spirit's power in the lives of those believers. Isn't that what Paul later said? He said, I don't come with eloquence or superior wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I believe that's a big reason thousands of people wanted to hear Peter, because they saw what's going on with these 120 people. They heard the wind. They, they saw the flames. They, they heard the many languages, and they're saying, this is not going on anywhere else in this city. This is something unusual. This is something powerful. I want to hear what's going on. And it leads me to the question I want to close us with. Would the world be more interested in the message you and I preach if they actually saw something different about our lives? 
Easy question, right? <laughs> yes. If they looked at our lives and saw something supernatural, would they, would they be interested in what we got to share? I'm talking about lives that are, are loving in a sacrificial love kind of way. Lives that are based on conviction between right and wrong. Lives that are bold. Lives filled with things that only the Spirit can bring, like love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Now, I'm not saying we need a repeat of Pentecost, okay? Because that was the beginning of the church. It's a one-time historical event. But if it's true that you and I are part of the same church that was conceived here by the Spirit of God, maybe, just maybe, if you and I looked and acted more like our supernatural father, they'd care more about what our supernatural father has to say. Amen? All right, Lord, we hear that and we see what you did. You know, at the end of the, end of the day, the, the big factor here, the biggest factor was not those 120 people, it was not Peter, it was, it was you. It was your Holy Spirit. It was your power. And God, we need that in our lives. We, we believe that the Holy Spirit lives in us if we trusted in Jesus. We don't have to wait. But God, some of us have been trying this thing in our own power. Uh, some of us are living with unconfessed sin and saying no to you, and we're, we're stifling His power in our lives. And I pray that you would lead us to a point of confession where we would, in our hearts or, or literally, get on our knees and say, God, these are the ways I am or have fallen short. I confess these to you. I, I accept what Jesus did. I, I know I'm forgiven, but I want, I want the flow of the Holy Spirit to be what directs my life again. I want His power to be what directs me. I want to stop trying to do it on my own. I pray that the Spirit would move in here right now and show us any of those areas where we are stifling His work. We're quenching Him. We're grieving Him. God, we don't need another Pentecost because the church was born, but we do need to live life in the power of Your Spirit. Help us to do that. Help us to trust You. God, help us to... Accept that feeling, not for just me and mine, but for the purpose you left us here in these last days, to go out and make disciples. God, not just for loving each other in here, which is so important, but for going out from here and finding the neighbor and the coworker and the person in a broken situation that needs to hear about this supernatural Savior that died and rose again. God, I pray that our very lives would, would point to you. We can't do that on our own. God, I pray even as we prepare to take this offering, Lord, that it reflect hearts that are generous towards you and your kingdom. And Father, that you continue to give us wisdom as a church to use those for your glory.
Help us to be a people of prayer, Lord. Not just people that talk about praying, but people that are constantly in prayer so that we can see your power at work in today's world. In Jesus' name, amen.